This week, we're bringing you one of the weirder conversations we've had on the show between yours truly, Pip Thorne, and Einstein Braga of The Amelia Project. We're talking postmodernism, bizarro Hamlet, edgelords, and magic, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. What you're about to hear is my interview with Pip and Einstein from Imploding Fictions, the theater company that produces The Amelia Project. We talk about what all of that means, their philosophical approach to storytelling, the story of how they met, that time they took an extremely weird postmodernist production of German playwright Heine Muller's Hamlet Machine to Cairo, and the best cup of hot chocolate Pip has ever had. If you haven't listened to the entire first season of Amelia, proceed with caution. I don't think we get in a super spoilery territory here, and with a few exceptions, Amelia is a show that resists being spoiled by its very nature. And anyway, who gives a crap about spoilers? Anyway, is your enjoyment really that altered when you learn plot details about a thing? Yeah, yeah, Grandpa's salty again. I know, get off my lawn. I'm just saying, it's not like the plot is the only thing that happens in a movie or an audio drama. You know, no one complains when you tell them the details of a movie's color palette before they've seen it. Eh, where's my Geritol? Anyway, enjoy the interview. Here we go. Einstein and Pip, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Well, thank you for having us. Hi. Yeah, it's an absolute honor and pleasure. <laughs> this has been a long time in the making. I'm so sorry I'm such a scatterboy. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I think I got a I got a Twitter message from you last summer mm-hmm. um, as I was standing on the North Yorkshire Moors with hardly any internet reception. So I was very <laughs> surprised that my that I suddenly actually got a message on my phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah. The universe knew it was an important message, Pip please <laughs> exactly <laughs> you you have ways of reaching us uh, even even in the remotest parts of the united kingdom <laughs> <laughs> we have we have our methods so the two of you met in directing school in london and there's this story pip that you tell or that both of you tell together on the behind the scenes episode of the podcast about oystein kidnapping his audience which is charming <laughs> and terrifying in equal measure what yes so if you remember, what were your first impressions of one another? I think my first impression of Einstein was that he had a very funky beard. <laughs> Describe for me this beard, please. Yeah, it, it, it looked very um, directorial. Um, it, it, it looked, yeah, Einstein really looked the part of like a of, of a of a directing student. It was the kind of beard you can kind of sort of stroke and 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 um, uh, yeah, stroke and, and and look kind of just very yeah, very artistic and very directorial. So I was kind of intrigued by this uh, strange uh, bearded Norwegian with a with a with a strange name, um, Einstein. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and I think we, uh, yeah, we, we, we got talking on the very first day. We, all of us, uh, we all went to the, to the pub. I mean, there were only five of us. It's, a, it's it was a very small course. We were five directing students. So, um, uh, you know, five students in a, in a room all day talking about plays and doing weird esoteric drama school exercises. You, you get to know each other pretty well. Um, uh, but yeah, Oistan and I kind of hit it off, uh, 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 immediately. I think the first thing I remember about 
hip is probably i think we found out very very early in uh, um, when we first met the the, the hip used to do magic mm-hmm. that he'd basically been been living uh, uh earning money as a magician right before he started rose proof and i think that uh intrigued me uh no end um and um yeah and i also think that yeah pip and i were kind of in a way sort of similar that we were both from abroad and the other students in our class were all British. And I think that also just drew us together that we had a different experience of moving to a new country and being, I mean, Pepe obviously lived in, in Britain before, but there was still uh, this feeling of being out of um, our normal surroundings. And, and right. So Pip, for people that maybe can't tell from your accent, where, what is Euro cocktail that makes up your heritage? Oh, uh, how much time have you got? <laughs> uh, yeah, my, so my mum... You have 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> my mum's German. My dad's sort of half British, half Swiss, born in Belgium, and I live in France. Uh, so I'm, uh, as uh, our lovely prime minister so charmingly put it, a citizen of nowhere. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad we're doing this interview now because you've actually dragged me away from the Guardian live blog where I'm feverishly following the, the Brexit process. So, um, so, 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 so it's good we're doing this. <laughs> sure. Yes. Anything to keep you away from, from, from Twitter and the live blog. It's, it's nightmarish. I, I, I mean, I can, I can only extrapolate, you know, like I'm watching in mute horror from my side of the Atlantic at what's happening in Britain, and also simultaneously, like, I moved to Washington, D.C. for some goddamn reason. Uh, <laughs> so, like, anything I can... The, you are doing me a service simultaneously. <laughs> the world is is screwed, but thank God we have audio drama to... Uh, thank to, God we have audio drama. Yeah. So, so mm-hmm. you, were, you were both coming from abroad. I send back to what you were saying. Mm-hmm. You both had this, like, outsider perspective, or what, what were you getting at there? Yeah, I think so. I think it's the uh, well, it's two things. It's being kind of a fish out of water sort of experience of being a bit, a bit lost in in new surroundings, and I think being you know that lostness perhaps uh, it was a similarity in our experiences that that, that pulled us towards each other um, as friends. But uh, but I do think that the outsider perspective and and kind of looking at things in a sort of why are things this way kind kind of thing is also something that mm-hmm. that. Pip and I share, I think, um, as an attitude, perhaps. So in, so Einstein, in, in kidnapping that audience, what were you trying to say to that audience about their expectations for where theater art can happen? And have you taken that spirit and applied it to the Amelia project? Um, I think, uh, there are, there's a long answer to that question. So I hope you have time. Um, the production that you're talking about was my very first production as a, as a director before I trained. So I was basically 19, which is very young, and I thought theatre was cool and I wanted to make action because I loved action films. So the idea was basically that we took... Um, uh, we, we, the audience would enter a bus to be driven to where the play was going to take place and along the route, the bus was stopped by actors with uh guns um and who yeah basically kidnapped in quote unquote the audience uh, and took them hostage so they were kind of placed in this big warehouse as hostages whilst the play took place around them now today i probably wouldn't have done that um 
but my youthful self thought that was only fun and cool. Um, most of the audience who came thought it was fun and cool. Some probably thought it was a little bit too much to get a gun shoved in their face when they thought they were going to the theater. But I think the the attitude of of kind of exploring the boundaries of where an art form can go is something that does excite me still to to look for where one art form bleeds into another or where you you find those uh, kind of blurry areas where 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 new things happen or where friction happens or where where things are unexpected and doing that without contravening like Ethics guidelines are traumatizing people. Exactly. I we t- these days I try not to traumatize my audience. Sure. <laughs> I th- I think that's very sensible. So, Pip, to go back to the the detail that you are a magician by training, I I feel like there's a good chunk of the Amelia project that functions on misdirection that we expect the plot to break one way and it goes another way. I'm thinking specifically of Stephen Lawrence Stroud, who wishes to fake his own death, not so that he can start a new life with his mistress, right, which is what the audience might expect, which is indeed what the interviewer expects, but so that he can break things off with his mistress and then seduce his wife at his own funeral. How do you work principles of stage magic into your writing? Um, yes, I, I think... That, that that that's a good observation i think that although i don't um uh, uh i don't perform magic anymore um i now really concentrate on writing but um i think um my my impulse when writing is kind of still the same i love things that involve trickery and i love i love twists and yes misdirecting the audience and in a way i still want the audience to feel the same thing as when i'm performing a magic trick you know i like moments of surprise and shock so I think we have these kinds of these kinds of pivots in all episodes, especially uh, yeah. There's the there's the Lawrence uh, Stephen Stroud episode you mentioned, also uh, very much in Percy, uh, and of course in the in, in the season finale when um, I'm not sure how explicit I should be, how many spoilers I should give, but um, there's a moment that um, uh, that suddenly makes us reassess everything that we've sort of listened to up until that point and i really enjoy those kinds of moments this question comes from our researcher heather who asks what it was that drew you from collaborating on theater to collaborating on podcasting we know that you're distributed right that this is a distributed production between paris and oslo and vienna um you you've said that there's a kind of ephemeral beauty to a piece of theater it's there it's witnessed and then it's gone and that there's something more permanent about podcasting but why was this the form you chose to collaborate in i think there are several answers i think it's a complex thing yeah i mean i think for me um initially it wasn't really about the um audio form uh or about podcasting as such it was really just a vehicle so a way that Oystein and I could work together Um, I mean funnily enough I was actually massively into audio drama as a kid so in Germany uh, where I grew up there's um, there's a very strong tradition of AD for kids Uh, at the time that was on kind of what's the one about the kobold what's his name oh um, Pumukl is that the one? Yeah, Pumukul. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Pumukul is really for small kids. I was sort of um, eight, nine. And so I was really into Famous Five. 
and um, so I listened to, I think they did I, I, about was kind of all 21 of those famous five uh, cassettes. I'd kind of save up my pocket pocket money and uh, and go and buy them. And and then when I was through with them, I decided to make my own. Um, so I had a cassette player with a with a record button. Um, so it was very simple to do. And I uh, I played all the male characters and my sister, Julia, who now plays Elvina, played all the female characters. Um, and uh, my my youngest sister played the dog. <laughs> and and what what are, what is the famous five? For, for people that are not familiar with, you know, Hirschbiele. Oh, The Famous Five. It's uh, The Famous Five. It's a, it's a series of kids' books by a British author called Enid Blyton. Um, and oh, like Lashings of Ginger Beer, Enid it, Blyton. That's the one. Yes, uh, uh, canned peaches and ginger beer and um, going off camping and, uh, and having amazing adventures. How did those end up as mainstays of german children's audio fiction it's it yeah it's strange isn't it but yeah they 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 dramatized all 21 of them wow <laughs> and that's not including my my own versions i did at least another 10 with my sister <laughs> and the other sister who played the dog did the dog have lines or did you just say woof no no the dog just barked sure um i had to give her that part because my mum said that we had to include her so she was allowed to play the dog <laughs> it's very important um so so yeah so 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 I was actually massively into audio as a kid but then after that as a as a teenager and adult I, I sort of forgot about it or I um yeah I mean I I guess I, I occasionally heard bits of BBC radio dramas in the UK but um they you know this is probably very unfair but you know they seemed a bit quaint and and sort of not probably sort of more for a middle-aged audience and um as a sort of directing student interested in experimental theatre, it, it, it really wasn't the sort of thing that um, that hooked me. Uh, the thing that completely changed all that was Welcome to Night Vale. Um, so I, I listened to that and it was just so different from from everything I associated with, uh, with radio drama. It was mm. uh, strange and funny and innovative and it seemed to have this weird kind of almost sort of punk energy to it and so that was kind of the gateway drug I, I instantly wanted to find more stuff like that and and I immediately thought you know wouldn't it be great to make something like this and uh, I even texted Einstein right away sent him a link to uh, to Night Vale uh, and said you know one day we should do something like this uh, but that was a yeah, I, I think that was probably about a year before we actually started discussing Amelia. And then the way that Amelia came about was that, um, so Einstein and I, uh, we used to live in, in, in the UK and we did uh, lots of theatre productions together. Then um, Einstein moved back to Norway and I moved to France. Uh, and at the beginning, I still came over to Norway quite regularly and we, we made work together in Oslo. Uh, and then um, then I had a kid. And so traveling was um, was not as easy for me anymore. Um, and so we were sort of looking for, um, for for a way that we could work together that didn't include uh, travel or at least that didn't uh, include travel and having to stay in another place for a long time. So when you make a play, you know, you have a rehearsal period of several weeks and and. Uh, that was something that I couldn't uh, afford to do anymore. Um, and so that then brought us back to podcasting. And we remembered that how excited we'd been um, uh, about Night Vale and possibly doing something in that form. Um, and so that is really sort of what brought us to podcasting. It was it was more the uh, the fact that it kind of suited 
um, our situation at that point. Um, and it was only after that that we really fell in love with it as a medium and are now complete um, uh, podcast obsessives. That only happened after we started working on it. Originally, it was it, it was sort of from the outside in, I guess. Interesting. And then, Oystein, you grew up... I, I remember you saying in an interview that, like, official Norwegian radio drama is awfully similar to the offerings of the BBC, right? That contemporary Norwegian audio drama is just crime television with the pictures off, right? That is pretty much true. And the the kind of sad situation in Norway, actually, is that the, uh, the, the Norwegian equivalent to the BBC has essentially got a sort of monopoly uh, on radio drama. Nobody else really produces radio drama. Now, I think that's very, very slowly beginning to change. But the 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 kind of width of of different genres that that have come out of the U.S. and the U.K. particularly in in audio drama over the last years and the, what the podcast medium has done, it it's yet to really reach Norway uh, in any significant way. Uh, mm. But for me, it's it it makes sense to uh, yeah not necessarily listen primarily to the Norwegian audio dramas, but but to really listen to to what happens in the rest of the world. Uh, Einstein, in a blog post on the Amelia website, you talked about the importance of the secret history of Twin Peaks to both you and Anders Petersen, uh, Amelia's graphic designer and illustrator. Tell me about the importance of a of that and of a, like a visual aesthetic to an audio drama podcast? Well, I mean, well, first of all, I just have to uh, admit that I am a massive, massive Twin Peaks fan. The world of David Lynch and, and Mark Frost and the ingenuity, the the uh, creativity, the absurdity uh, that they allow into that universe, the, the way they allow things to not make sense. Uh, there are a lot of things that, that really just work on your emotions. I mean, I yeah, I'm, I'm just head over heels in love with, with that entire universe. So, so that's one thing that, that I draw a lot of inspiration from. Now, as for the second part of the question, which is about the visual, uh, the visuals, um, to associate uh, the, the your audio drama will be associated with something visual, kind of whether you want it or not, uh, because when it, wherever you find it, be it on a smartphone or on a computer screen, there will be visuals to go along with it. There will be a logo, there will be a website, there will be a Twitter account, and I think it, it's to to be recognizable visually is is absolutely essential. And I think it's exciting as well to to be able to build a world that extends beyond the audio um, and which in itself contains little stories or messages um, uh, yeah uh, that that complement and and broaden the, um, the the artistic work I mean be, beyond like the logo what are the the visual icon what's the visual iconography of Amelia well uh, I mean we've uh, on the sh our graphic designer have come up with a lot of things that that we've been really um, uh, yeah, impressed by or that, that we really fall in love with it and that we are working to develop further. I, I think the the uh, what are they called the the boards, the message boards, for example, that we've used on on Twitter to announce things that are um, they keep kind of recurring with different messages. Um, I, I think the the aesthetic that we've gone for is sort of uh, we've we've used some photography as well. Um, on our website but it's uh, 
the the drawn aesthetic and the kind of cartoony aesthetic that Anish uh, is is Anish's uh, kind of forte uh, really suits the the style of the of the show I think um, and 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 managing to create a world without giving away things or without presenting things that go against what the audience expects i think is also a tricky thing like for example what does the interviewer look like everybody will have their own interviewer in their minds and they should be allowed to so i think there we, we have to be very careful with how we uh, portray our characters visually as well and so far we haven't actually shown any faces so we've got some images of the interviewer and alvina but they stop at the neck um so so far we've actually resisted showing actual faces and and i think actually another um uh, another thing where the uh, secret history of Twin Peaks might have uh, a sort of an, an impact on Amelia, uh, and that also this also kind of um, feeds into to, to, to the visual style and the work with Anders, um, is the uh, the case files that continue each episode. So for for each um, podcast episode, uh, we also create a, a case file. Uh, which sort of continues the case or which gives uh, the, the the main element of this case file is generally the the minutes of how the disappearance went down so it's a kind of blow by blow account um of um uh, yeah of what happens after what you hear in the episode and that is something where 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 the inspiration comes very much from uh, the secret history of twin peaks which is essentially kind of like a a dossier of um uh of files and documents um uh, showing kind of what happened in Twin Peaks between the first series and then the 20 years uh, in between until we have the, the, the new series that came out last year. Yeah, just to, just to explain uh, to listeners who might not know that the, the case files are available uh, to our patrons. They're, they're part of the, the extra material that we offer to, to patrons of the show via patreon.com um, and also available uh, via our webpage, our web shop. And so, so yeah, so so so, that, so so we have these written documents, but then we also have um, uh, occasionally we also have a sort of extended vi- sort of yeah, visual uh, maps and diagrams and, and and things. So, for example, um, the uh, for, for episode eight, I think it is um, Luke, which takes place in the Hell theme park. Um, we actually with Anders, we actually made a map of Hell. So we've got this little fold out. It's like a sort of you know those Disneyland. Um, maps and we've actually created that for the hell theme park <laughs> that is great and awful uh speaking of hell are are the people <laughs> who work at amelia evil because they're certainly pretty amoral there's there's this one bit in the Stephen lawrence stroud episode where i, I found myself actually gasping aloud where the the interviewer kind of gently glosses over in his cold way the deaths of everyone in Stroud's office because he assumes that Stroud had engineered the explosion that it wasn't in fact a freak accident. Um, I I don't know. This isn't really a question. Like sometimes I think too much is made of whether or not uh, you know a a show contains characters that are likable or relatable. But Alvina and Joey Salvatore and the interviewer are not. They're not good people right they commit fraud they're they're no, basically they're blackmailing they're everybody they're right um, they are they well oh they yes i mean you know they in every episode they they uh commit crimes and they do um 
a lot of uh, horrible things. Um, uh, but on the other hand, uh, we recently had a tweet from someone uh, a week ago or so saying the interview, the interviewer is the purest human. Um, <laughs> which I kind of like because there is um, um, there is also a kind of innocence about him um, in that he he likes people. Um, he likes listening to people, he likes finding out about people, you know, much to Alvina's annoyance, he never reads the meticulous case files that she's compiled because he prefers to, to, um, to get to know somebody by talking to them. Um, and he, um, he sort of, yeah, he's, he's, he plays off kind of instinct and emotion. And, and so I think everything sort of, everything comes from, a. <laughs> just avoiding to say good in the place <laughs> no i think it's i think it's true i think i mean we have this discussion constantly uh in the writing process uh about what uh just the balance that we have to strike with these characters because they they cannot do things that are just directly evil or cruel because then our audience are going to lose empathy with them and 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 why would we want to write about um characters who who we can't empathize with but on the other hand they what makes them exciting as characters or perhaps what makes people want to to kind of um go into that universe is is the fact that they they um balance on this line of of, of being allowing themselves to be cynical but not cruel uh to uh, be excited by mayhem but but not wish harm upon good people i mean there are there are a lot of it's, it's the balance between what is kind of what we can allow them to do and not allow them to do is something that we do discuss quite a lot um, but i think one of the things that, that, that makes me want to work with art that makes me want to tell stories is the fact that i'm allowed to enter into kind of moral ambiguity um which you can't really do in your own real life um other than in your thoughts you shouldn't say that out loud um if you want to still have friends um but but to, to go into a story where you can actually uh, entertain the notion of doing something that that is perhaps illegal or even amoral if not immoral um i i think excites me and basically the the amelia project's kind of bottom line for their clients is you know they don't care about good or evil they just care about is it interesting <laughs> i know i just i keep thinking about there's this one onion piece from the onion satirical newspaper from like 2015 and it's a it's a fake editorial ostensibly written by donald trump and the headline is face it you want to see how far this thing goes don't you like amelia does not approach this at all um but i've been thinking a lot about the edgelord aesthetic are you familiar with this this idea no i'm not i'm afraid so the idea of being an edgelord is this very, like, straight white man, like, I've, I've encountered all the, like, most hardcore shit there is to encounter. Um, it can be kind of a gross-out aesthetic. It's very cynical, or it's, it's preemptively cynical. Um, and I think it, it, can, it can be a, a, a troll mindset. 
but it's it's like a oh let's see how far we can take something just for the sake of taking it too far like riding the line like to be an edge lord is to trollishly occupy moral gray areas in discourse without concern for like now time oystein wouldn't do this but 19 year old oystein like kidnapping people at gunpoint that's an edgelord move right that's like a, oh man i'm gonna fuck up some people's shit tonight right yeah no you're absolutely right you should you should see the photo of me in the in the program from that time i look like a maniac i don't know what <laughs> was going on in my life but uh uh yeah i think i've mellowed over the years no but i i, th- I think that that's interesting that's a very interesting concept and it's something that that i don't want to do or be in real life but it is definitely something i want i, I want art to occupy that space i think that is right. one of the reasons we have art is to, in, to to be to be able to occupy that space and to explore those things without actually causing harm or grievance um, to our fellow right. men i think there's a lot of like philosophy questions that that amelia plays with like The episode with Alicia Karen, to me, seems to reflect the ship of Theseus problem, right? Karen is told that she can have every part of her body replaced except for her brain, but then is she still Alicia? You know, are Mm. are you consciously seeking out these these problems to work through with episodes? For sure, yeah, definitely. So that one was specifically like, what if we did ship of Theseus, the person? Yeah, I, I I was actually I, I only uh, became aware of the the ship thesis uh, afterwards actually, but um, yeah, but 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 that question of um, yeah, you know what constitutes identity and um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and uh, you know in a way I think the crux of that of that episode is. Um, uh, you know, at which point does if if I exchange everything in my body, <laughs> at which point does the sw- switchover happen? You know, uh, you exchange the kidneys and it's still me. You exchange the 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 spleen and it's still me. You exchange the salivary glands and suddenly it's not. You know, where, where, at, 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 right. at, at which point um, where is identity located? Um, uh, yeah. So you know, I mean, we're, we're constantly looking for. Um, sort of uh knotty problems um that that people can bring to amelia so um uh, and 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 so often those can be found in uh in sort of philosophical questions or or, or paradoxes what are some other paradoxes that have been occupying you lately um i mean there's also the um uh the zale indigo ravenheart episode um mm-hmm. which is kind of about um uh you know going down all of the you know kind of the the, the parallel universe theory and um uh all of the different uh all of the different roads you can go down um uh i mean so that that's very much a, an an episode that, that's based on a on a, on a ph- philosophical idea so i've i've never been to graduate school i've never taken any directing classes i don't know shit about postmodernism but i wanted to talk to you about the name of your production company imploding fictions and what it means to you 
um, you've you've expressed an interest in metafiction, right? With these two episodes about Percy, a man who approaches Amelia so he can escape his dreary life as a character in a fiction podcast called The Amelia Project. And and when Siri, the terrifying general superintelligence, finally shuts down, it reveals that the extra I in her name stands for imploding. Um, so what does it mean to implode fictions? Why are you interested in playing with form and distorting it in this do want, way? Do you want to go first, Einstein? I'll give it a shot. Um, again, I think it's about uh, what I was talking about earlier, these the gray areas, the blurry areas, the areas where you don't quite know uh, and where anything could happen. Uh, the, the, those are the, the moments in art that, that excites me the most. Uh, so I, I, and right from the beginning of our collaboration, I mean, Pip and I started the company at the uh, uh, right before we graduated from Rose Bruford College, uh, and we started the company whilst co-directing our, uh, our graduate piece, uh, which was Hamlet Machine by Helen Miller, which is one of the kind of postmodern. Um, classics if that is even a that's a bit of an oxymoron i guess but uh <laughs> um, so, so we yeah <laughs> although we somehow managed to turn it into a comedy <laughs> everything we touch turns into a comedy um so we took this very very de dense um um german uh experimental deconstruction of hamlet and and uh, it's only four pages long and we turned it into a one-hour comedy and you took that to cairo right yes we did, yes, yes. So, so yeah. So it's it, it's a kind of um, um, deconstruction of Hamlet, and there was a pivotal moment in that show where um, the the lead actor um, forgets his lines in the middle of a soliloquy. Um, but we uh, we didn't play that moment for, for for laughs. We really made that moment look and feel super real. Um, and I think we can convince most of the audience that there had been a a, a horrible mistake. Um, and, uh, you know, and then eventually the actor actually walks off stage. Oh no. Uh, and there's this really uncomfortable, but also kind of exciting and also awkward moment. Um, and, uh, then a phone rings and the actress who's still on stage kind of looks, uh, crossly into the audience and then realizes it's her own mobile that's ringing. Um, uh, and then she answers it. And it's the actor who's just walked <laughs> off stage um, and she puts him on speakerphone and he's standing outside the theatre. You can hear the cars and the buses going by. Uh, and then he continues his soliloquy over the phone um, uh, as he starts walking away from the theatre. Um, and uh, by that time, obviously, it's clear to, 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 to most of the audience that uh, this has been set up. Um, and then uh, actually there's another twist because what you're hearing over the answer phone, actually, it's not really him. It's something that's been pre-recorded. And in the meantime, um, he is now sitting in the audience without his costume in plain clothes. Uh, and then he suddenly <laughs> he, come, he walks up onto stage while we still hear his voice through the phone. But now he's in his normal clothes and then all of the actors get into their normal clothes. And then the whole kind of theatre situation unravels and is deconstructed. So, um, so you know, so so I think... Uh, that was another moment where we sort of blurred the line between what was real, what isn't, what's set up, what isn't. Um, uh, and and we've always loved uh, 
those kind of moments we're interested both in fiction and te in telling stories but also in deconstructing that and kind of subverting the medium in a comedic way and having fun with it so i think that's how the title imploding fictions kind of came about uh, and yes that was our first kind of collaboration the first show we did kind of together and all of that was so none of that is in the text uh, a lot of the things we do have got roots in that and so i think the episode percy um, i think it surprised a lot of people um, but actually, if you know our previous theatre work, it's kind of like a logical continuation of that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, this question is related, and it comes from Will, our producer, and she asks, what is a protagonist? There's a whole line of these, actually. What is a protagonist? Who is the protagonist of each episode of The Amelia Project? Does the series have a protagonist? And what is the value of a protagonist? Ooh. Wow. Um, uh, well, a protagonist, the definition of a protagonist is that it is the character that through their actions and choices drives the story forward. Um, so the question, who is the protagonist of each episode? It varies a little bit, but generally it is the uh, client that comes in. Uh, because they are the ones who have a need, they have something they have to accomplish, uh, which is to disappear and, and get away. Um, and uh, uh, what they face in the Amelia of office is the obstacle of someone who is there to help them, but also to tell them that uh, their plan isn't going to work, or their idea isn't as good as they first thought, or to help them kind of unravel uh, this uh, their own situation uh, in order to find a solution. Um, so that answers, I think, the first two questions. What was the third one? Is there a series protagonist? Was that? Does the series have a protagonist? Yeah. Um, I guess the answer to that is sort of it sort of answered. Uh, or revealed in the season finale of uh, the first season where you discover that there uh, has been a more overarching uh, plot going on uh, which places the Amelia team at the center of the story uh, whereas before and up until that point they have been there to facilitate the individual clients we now see the outlines of something that uh, much more involves them i think that's as vague as i can be without uh revealing anything about what comes in season two um <laughs> sure. yeah and and what's the value of a protagonist does a story does a does a theatrical work or a piece of fiction need to have one um i think the the classical answer to that uh, question is yes i think a more modern or postmodern answer to that question is no in in terms of my attitude or what what my yeah feelings are about about any work of art that uh, or a work of art that that runs through time so, so any story work of art or any um yeah the i mean a picture you can just look at and walk away but in a the story there needs to be something that keeps you hooked there needs to be something that makes you want to continue listening or watching for however long this thing goes on so a story needs something that keeps you hooked but what that something is uh 
can be a lot of different things. One of the most common things to keep you hooked is a protagonist, uh, a person that you can empathize with who has a desire to change something or achieve something which will, which becomes a metaphor for your own desires in your own life that is the kind of that's classical storytelling that's what a protagonist kind of that's a function of it and it, which which is very important in story but of course you could go along with just spectacle and people will go wow great explosions and they will be willing to sit through three hours of that without a particularly exciting protagonist or you can go to see a dance performance that has no story at all and just uh, appreciate the beauty of it so of course there are a lot of things a concert doesn't have a protagonist it's just somebody who sings songs if the songs are beautiful enough you'll sit to through two hours of it and and still want an, an encore so the the answer is no but uh, but if you're going to not have an protagonist you need to know what you're exchanging it with and and that needs to be really really exciting so i've never been to dumago uh, i did remember it's, it's funny because i remembered seeing it i went to paris with jillian my now wife uh in 2017 um this was before we, we actually got engaged on that trip um and i bought two belts at a men's clothier across the street on boulevard saint-germain um loading it's called it's like across from the the eglise saint-germain tell me pip what is so wonderful about that hot chocolate oh about that hot chocolate so i'd say it's yeah it's so it, it it's the epitome of warmth and comfort um it's uh it, it's the best hot chocolate in paris uh second best hot chocolate in the world um and um and dr is the first best hot chocolate in Vienna somewhere? What's the first best? So for me, the best hot chocolate I've ever had was on a small island in the Venice Lagoon. Um, I I huh. went to Venice uh, in winter um, and it was really misty and really rainy and incredibly spooky and atmospheric. Um, uh, and I took a boat to one of the small islands, uh, Burano. Um, in, in the Venice Lagoon. And uh, when I got there, I was just absolutely soaked through. Um, and uh, so I kind of took shelter in um, in in a little cafe. It was really just a, a little cafe in a back street, nothing spectacular. Um, and ordered a hot chocolate, uh, Chocolata Calda, mm -hmm. I think it's called. And it was so thick. I mean, the spoon literally stood upright in it. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I, that, that hot chocolate was, was absolutely incredible. I don't think I'd be able to find this place again. Um, uh, you know, possibly. I almost think that's better. Think it might not right? even be there if, if I went there, you know, it was that good. It was a kind of, it was, it was kind of metaphysically good. So yes, probably, probably the place doesn't even exist if you go back, um, I also think that you wouldn't be able, like, I, I don't wish that this were true, but if you did go back there, I don't think that you would be able to recreate the circumstances under which you had that initial perfect cup of hot chocolate. Yes. Right? Like, as you were telling me that story, there's like a bit from Don Quixote where Sancho Panza says, hunger is the best sauce, <laughs> right? And the the circumstances of that cup of hot chocolate probably contributed to it being 
this like restorative beverage? Absolutely. Not to cast aspersions on it. I'm sure it was like objectively delicious, but I also think that there were other elements of it that, that can change. Anyway. But okay, but Dumago, also similarly thick, like mostly chocolate by weight, kind of hot yes, cocoa. Yes, it's, I mean, it's, it's melted chocolate. It isn't really, it's, it's not cocoa powder in, in milk or water. It's, it's melt, it's melted chocolate in a cup. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, I've been there a couple of times now, I've gone to visit Pip in Paris and it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's the kind of drink that just makes you groan uh, indecently <laughs> in public yeah whenever whenever Einstein comes to Paris we go there um, um, I mean you know it was one of the main hangouts for for Sartre and Hemingway and Camus and Picasso and James Joyce and Brecht and so on so we're we're in decent company um, uh, but uh, it's it's not actually a place I it's not sort of one of my usual hangouts otherwise. Saint-Germain is kind of a bit too posh for me. I have sort of other cafes I go to. But um, when whenever Einstein is there, it's kind of like we it's a pilgrimage. We have to go and we have to have the, we have to have the chocolat chaud. You released an episode. We've been referring to it throughout the interview in the beginning of 2018 called How Would You Like to Disappear? In which, Pip, you confessed that you'd like to mysteriously vanish on the Paris metro. And Einstein, yours was a little bit more vague, but it transpired in fiction that you'd gone missing while going down to the grocery store for some brunost, which is like Norwegian brown cheese made from whey. Do you still maintain these and metro fantasies? If not, what are your what are your updated disappearance fantasies? Did I say it right? Did I say matpake right? Uh, you did. I'm very impressed. Uh, I, I didn't have a know Norwegian. Norwegian. I don't. um no i think i think i would probably like to update mine um i think uh, i I don't have a clear vision because i haven't thought about this but uh, uh i think i would like a disappearance that was public and spectacular and impossible like like magic in some way say you know just standing in the middle of a big square and then shouting and everybody looking at you and then vanishing into thin air um (laughs) that would be fun i have no idea how to accomplish that but i'll be working on it okay and how would you like to reappear i think then i should just like materialize somewhere else in a similar fashion i think that would be but many years later without having aged (laughs) <laughs> that's a good Amelia challenge um yeah I think um I yeah I think I should also go for something a little bit more so because my last disappearance was quite discreet uh the one kind of mm-hmm. disappearing from a train carriage between two stations uh it's a very kind of quiet mysterious disappearance so i think for my second disappearance i should go for something a little bit more flamboyant and in your face um so i um went, so back when i was doing magic and, and 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 juggling um professionally um one of my um sort of um centerpiece routines tricks was um that i juggle with flaming torches 
um, with while being blindfolded. So I got someone from the audience to put a, a bag, to tie a bag around my head, like first of all, to, to check that you can't actually see through the bag, uh, then tie the bag around my head. And then, then I would uh, get someone else to pass me the, the, the torches. Um, and then, uh, um, yeah, then I juggle with burning torches. Uh, and, and this was often something I did on, on the street, uh, sort of street performances as well. So I think I would do a street performance, um, juggling with burning torches with this bag over my head. Uh, I hurl one of the torches up into the air. Uh, it comes down, um, lands on my head, sets the bag on fire. Um, I start charging through the, 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 the crowd, um, uh, like just charging down the street, uh, alight and um and uh, and burn to death uh so that's my 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 death um <laughs> and for my reappearance i don't know what it says about me that i actually have a better idea about my death than for how i'd like to reappear but um I mean, I think what it says about I, you is that you mostly enjoy your life and you would feel kind of guilty escaping your spouse and two children. <laughs> so that it's actually good that you haven't put a ton of thought into the new life that you'd uh, like to okay. have. Yes. That actually speaks pretty well frankly. <laughs> yeah, maybe it would have been a bit worrying if I had had it like all sketched out. I just wanted to give a shout out to Frederick Baden, our oh, yes. amazing sound designer and composer. Without him, there is no Amelia Project. Sure. Yes. Um, yeah, he's really, I sort of think of him as a, as a co-creator, really. Tell me how you met Frederick Baden. Well, it's, it's kind of my story, I guess, because I'd worked with, uh, I know uh, Frederick's sister very well. Um, she's an actress and producer in Oslo. And through her, I'd, I'd briefly worked with Frederick's brother, who is a drummer, uh, on a performance. Um, and then uh, originally we, we contacted uh, Frederick's brother to ask him if he wanted to be involved in this project. Uh, and he couldn't. And he was like, but I have, there is another sibling in this family who's also very creative and talented. How about you talk There's to my brother? Baden. Um, so, <laughs> another Baden. Uh, they are, yeah, all of them just are artists. And He's also uh, got a yeah. sister who sometimes uh, appears so in we, little cameos in, uh, in the Amida project. <laughs> Yeah, so we we so I yeah so I went to to meet Frederick and we uh, immediately uh, hit it off. And originally he was he was making the theme tune for us, and then we we also asked like, do you want to try your hand at actually doing the the sound design for this? Because we yeah we were we were struggling to find a sound designer to work with. Um, the that we sort of that we had a good match with and, and that that worked out for us. And Frederick was like, I've not really done that before, but I will give it a try. And then it turns out he's just a natural and he really gets what we want. And he has, you know, very much his own ideas about how things should be. And he pushes the show to other kind of standards that we really like that are way beyond uh, anything that I could have imagined or even knew was, you know, possible. Um, so it was it just clicked, really. Um, and uh, and yeah, this was really lovely. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, well. No, yeah, thank, thank you. you for having us on. <laughs> and for your, your, your patience and your forbearance. Yeah, no, it's been really lovely and fun to talk to you. 
um, and uh, and it means that I could forget uh, Brexit for a bit. So, oh, thank God, yeah. <laughs> but you had to remind us. You had to remind us. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate. Um... <laughs> oh, what a terrible time. Woo! Everything's terrible. We have fun. No, that was that was great. That was legitimately great. Thank you, fellas. And thank you, Will, for your fine work on this interview. Eli McElveen remains our senior interviews producer, but we here at RDR believe in development opportunities. If you want to get good at something, there's always something here for you to try. For example, Will is currently in our recreation annex, practicing pulling an elephant out of a hat and then making it disappear. Okay, Topsy. You ready, baby? Okay, great. One, two... Three. Good girl. Okay, we're gonna try to put you back in now. No. No. Oh, sorry, folks. We just can't pokeball this baby. Nice work, you two. Now do the bubble thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you want to support Imploding Fictions, the theater company that produces Amelia, head on over to patreon.com slash ameliapodcast. And while you're on Patreon, you can support our work too. Patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. If you support us at the $10 level, you can get access to our brand new recipe corner, where we are unveiling delicious recipes that pertain to the shows we feature. This time, we've got a thoroughly decadent French-style chocolat chaud from our very own Elena Fernandez-Collins. You can follow us on Twitter, where we're at Radiodrama, and visit our website at radiodramarevival.com. I have bittersweet news to report. James Oliva, our social media manager, is taking off. With his many, many voice acting roles, writing and directing responsibilities for What's the Frequency Season 2, and everything else he's got to do in life, He's spread a little too thin right now. So if you would like to take his place as social media manager, let us know. Send us an email at submissions at radiodramarevival.com with your resume, a link to your favorite social media account that you run, some of your favorite tweets. These can be tweets that were especially engaging, that were particularly good at driving traffic, that provided useful and important information, or even ones that just brought you joy. And a paragraph or two about why you think you'd be a good fit for the role. The position is paid, though intermittently and not very much. I'm also happy to answer questions at that same email address. Radio Drama Revival gives priority to marginalized and underrepresented voices, especially those in radio and podcasting. So if you're looking for a place to spread your wings, think of us. I look forward to hearing from you. And now, your moment of will. Will, hit us with that sweet Amelia Earhart trivia. Yeah, yeah, yeah! So last week, I asked you what Amelia Project-related thing Amelia Earhart did on one of her flights, and it's very fitting. Y'all, she drank hot cocoa. That's right. And hey, listener, you warm up my heart like fantastic hot cocoa on a nice, chilly, rainy day. I love you. Thank you, Will. And now it's time for the credits. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Elena Fernandez-Collins is our submissions editor. I am currently our social media manager, but you can be too. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouch. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. <laughs>